want to pick up, actually, um, where Howie left off last night in his talk when he um, quoted Nisargadatta, who said, Love tells me, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. Tonight I want to talk about how we can make the bridge between our practice here on the cushion and our lives in the world. One way we can bridge what seems like such, a, such different worlds. And the Nisargadatta gives us a clue when he's talking about that we need both the emptying practice of letting go, which cultivates wisdom, and we need the a practice of compassion and love, which brings us into the world in a very engaged way. In the Buddhist tradition, letting go is equated to wisdom, and right intention is, in, is equated to the cultivation of love and compassion. We could say that these two are twins. They kind of come together. It is not enough just to cultivate wisdom, just to cultivate the letting go and emptying out. We must also cultivate the heart which goes forth and connects with all of life and sees itself everywhere. The way we do that practically is through the practice of cultivating what is called right intention. Right intention is one of the limbs of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path begins with right understanding, goes to right intention, right speech, right um, action, right livelihood. So there's a bit of a progression. The, the quality of intention that we bring to um, ourselves, to our lives, is an expression of understanding the truth of the Four Noble Truths. And certainly this week we've been looking at that quite, quite a bit. The truth of suffering and the truth that it is possible to let go of suffering and discover the peace that the Buddha spoke about. So right intention um, is the one of the most crucial things that we can bring from our sitting practice back into our lives. We've also talked on this retreat, or many of you in interviews have talked about how much you've been noticing about the thinking mind, how much you've been noticing about the dominance of thought in your experience. It, it's very powerful, isn't it? Thinking. You've noticed that. So right intention is taking the enormous energy that we put into thinking about so many things and instead applying all that energy of thought into um, cultivating thoughts which are in the direction of love, compassion, generosity, non-harming, 
kindness to ourselves, kindness to others, so that there's a, a skillful use of thought. Thought is not something to be done away with, but rather to be used for the benefit of ourselves and others. In the <clears throat> Dhammapada sayings of the Buddha, We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Now, you've been looking at your thoughts, so this may seem more true to you than when you first arrived. With your thoughts, you make your world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So in our practice here, we have, and I would encourage the continuation of cultivating the simple phrases of loving kindness and compassion that we've taught a bit of on this retreat. The simplest phrases like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease, may I be free from harm, may I be free from fear, may I have courage, may I accept myself as I am. These very simple phrases are likened to seeds, to seeds that we plant in our minds, we plant in our hearts, we plant in our consciousness, knowing, by understanding the laws of cause and effect, knowing that whatever seeds we plant will bear fruit. They will come to fruition. I heard that this analogy that really struck me, that it's possible for the seeds of redwood trees to be dormant for a hundred years. And yet, given the right conditions, if there's a big forest fire and there's a lot of particular kind of intense heat, the seeds will begin to germinate and begin to sprout and they will give forth. So we don't say that we can say when these um, seeds of, of the intentions we want to cultivate in our lives, we can't say when they will show results but we can be sure that the results will follow as night follows day. Now, we can look out into our world and look at it from the point of view of the intentions that are being manifested in our world. What are the intentions that we see in our culture? The intentions that we're taught as we grow up in this culture. Things like being to be competitive, to succeed, to win, 
to get rich, to be famous, to be powerful, to be noticed, to take advantage of people, to be the winner. You know, there's a big emphasis in that in our culture. And it's so easy to be influenced by that. So easy, by the advertising, by the media, by images of what this life is, what you're, who you're supposed to be in this life. And we all are influenced by that. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly winds that we're subject to in the world. The, the winds of pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise, blame, and fame and disrepute. That somehow the world promotes the idea that this is what we are to put our energy into. Pleasure, gain, praise, fame. We've all been there. We've all experienced the seduction of those kinds of promises. Only to find that they're short-lived or they don't live up to their promise. We can be praised a lot and still feel a deficiency. So there's a sense of, what else? What more? So we have a... opportunity in mindfulness practice, in in loving-kindness practice, in compassion practice, to really give some reflection and thought about what kinds of intentions we want to cultivate for ourselves. It's really a question of what kind of world do we want to live in? Ever since September 11th, I've just been noticing how the disparity between the world I feel I live in and the world as it seems to be presented in the nightly news. And I have felt more and more like I don't live in that world. I live in this world of people who are cultivating qualities of generosity, non-harming, morality, wisdom, compassion. That is the I feel very fortunate actually to live in that world to live in a world where those intentions take sway over the intentions of aggression and violence, winning, being powerful. That's not a world I live in. But this speaks of the power of the practice. When we cultivate intentions that are deeply meaningful to us, that have a lot of potency in our own hearts and minds, We are creating a world, just as the Dhammapada says. With our thoughts, we make the world we live in. So what kind of intention do we bring to our practice? That's a good place to start. That's a good question to ask. The intention we bring will influence or determine or influence or determine the results of our practice. If we come to meditation or to yoga for stress reduction, that is what we will get. And I'm not saying that's that's a fine thing. If that's what you want, that's a fine thing, and you will find it. If your intention is the transformation of judgment into compassion, you can also find that in your practice. There's a lot of 
um, learning in that kind of intention that many of you on this retreat have been experiencing. You have the intention of looking at um, greed in your life and wanting to transform that more into generosity. This is also what you will likely find in your practice over time. So the question for tonight is really for you to look at what it is you want to cultivate in your practice and in your life. It's really, really up to you. It's nothing that anybody else can give you. Thich Nhat Hanh helps to um, explain how this works. He says, the future, if you want to know what the future of your life will be, the future can be seen right now because the future will be made of the present. If you look deeply into the present, you know already what kind of future you'll have. If you can produce significant change in the present moment, then you know that the future may be different. And that is the practice of cultivating intention. When we can see ourselves planting seeds of the intentions that we want to cultivate in this moment, we are planting the seeds for our future. When that future will come, in what manner it will manifest, we cannot say. So in the texts, right intention is um, defined, a definition of right intention, is the thought of renunciation, the thought of compassion, and the thought of non-harming. That is considered right intention. Now, we could translate renunciation to letting go, the thought of letting go. And certainly mindfulness practice is, is concerned with letting go. The thought of compassion, the thought of non-harming, of living in this world with great care and concern for all of life. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, there are different levels or expressions of renunciation. Most often when we hear that word, we may think of monks or nuns or people who have renounced living a life in the world, living a life in families, raising children, you know, going to the movies, on vacations, playing sports. But many are attracted to that kind of life. It's called going forth into homelessness. And some people are attracted to that life. We have a wonderful monk here at Spirit Rock that some of you I know have met, Achan Amaro. He's one of the happiest people I've ever met. He loves being a monk. He's just he just feels like he's, you know, hit the jackpot being a monk. And there's a monastery, a Bayagiri monastery. Now there are many other monks joining him. And it's a wonderful, happy, vital place. It's not for everybody, though. That doesn't mean we cannot practice in the same way, that we cannot also understand the uh, value of letting go. So for us as lay people, renunciation doesn't mean uh, 
a life of asceticism or bleak deprivation, but uh, we can still enjoy having three meals a day, wearing nice clothes, owning a home, having a family, raising children, going on vacation, getting really excited about who's winning the world, whatever, you know. (laughs) World Cup, I'm sorry. (laughs) What I noticed at tea tonight was that these guys have a way of knowing the scores, even though they're on retreat. Ken, what is, what is it that we're letting go of if we're not letting go of, of um, the lifestyle? <laughs> Something you'd like to share? I was going to check my messages to see what the score is. Oh, he was going to check his messages to see what the latest score is. What are we renouncing? Well... Actually, this author, Gene Smith, has a nice paragraph about this I thought I'd like to share with you because it's very powerful to hear this, I think. She says, We can renounce eating foods cultivated with chemicals that harm animals, humans, and the environment. We can renounce traveling to places that systematically abuse the human and civil rights of its people. We can renounce wearing clothing made in sweatshops. We can renounce going to cultural events that express racism or ethnic prejudice. We can renounce having relationships in which we use other people for our own transient pleasures. All told, we can renounce harming. That's our job. Renounce harming. And that's a lifelong task. It's not obvious sometimes how we're harming things or even if we're harming. But if we educate ourselves, if we become conscious, we find ways of living where we can, as much as possible, live without harming others or ourselves. We are exercising a powerful choice in our lives when we plant in our minds the seeds of positive intention. We're we're exercising a powerful choice. And we could see that also that sitting in meditation is an expression of an intention. What is that intention? The intention of letting go. If we understand meditation correctly, that is the intention of it. Trungpa Rinpoche writes, meditation is not a matter of trying to achieve ecstasy, spiritual bliss, or tranquility, nor is it attempting to become a better person. What is it then? (laughs) Gee, I thought it was all those other things. It is simply the creation of a space in which we are able to expose and undo our neurotic games, our self-deceptions, our hidden fears and hopes. We provide space through the simple discipline of doing nothing. Actually, doing nothing is very difficult. Wouldn't you agree? At first, we must begin by approximating doing nothing. (laughs) And gradually, our practice will develop. So we give the mind a bone. We say, watch the breath. You know? 
if we if we sat down if we if we just if you all came in here and we and we just said you know sit down do nothing <laughs> it, it, you just wouldn't be able to even know what was expected when I first started in Zen practice um, I love Zen I really love Zen I love the teachers I thought it was amazingly profound even though I didn't understand very much. <laughs> And the only instruction that I remember ever receiving was this, when we would sit in the zendo, somebody would shout at the beginning of the sitting, die on the pillow. (laughs) Die on the pillow. And I'd think, yes, yes, I know this is really important. I'm going to do it this time, you know. And I think I almost did die, but not in the sense that they meant. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly when we sit, we see how we're holding on. And that is the practice of letting go. We have to see how we're holding on before we can let go. And I know many of you have been a bit alarmed at how much you're holding on. But that's the beginning. And it's, there's levels. I'll tell you a story about myself that was it turned into a very big learning experience. Not pleasant. <laughs> it was very unpleasant, actually. <laughs> Why? Because I had a very strong intention to prove that I was right. I wanted to be right about something. And I came into conflict with other people who did not see it that way. They did not believe I was right. And it was very painful because I really wanted to be right. And I really thought I was right. And eventually I saw, as this went on and became more and more unpleasant, that I was going, now I know the word for it, I was going for what is called a Pyrrhic victory, (laughs) which is a victory achieved at excessive cost. This is the exact definition. Costly to the point of negating expected benefits. (laughs) Which means that you might be right, but you also might be all by yourself. And your relationships would be destroyed. So when I really got that, I saw what I was doing was really harming myself and others in the process. I began to rethink my intention. And I began to realize I had to focus in another direction. And so I did. And I let go of my need to be right. It was quite a learning process. And I feel good now that I did what I did and that I can say that I turned my attention in the direction of restoring harmony. I turned my attention in the direction of asking for forgiveness. And that has been a very important learning for me. To my ego, it felt like a failure. It did not feel good to have to surrender being right. But my being was healed in the letting go of that. 
Sometimes we learn more from our failures than our successes, wouldn't you say so? Ajahn Tiradamo, a monk, writes this. The lessons from the... um, He says, I realize I've learned some of my most important lessons from the failures, not from the successes. The The successes are secondary. You get a charge from them for a while. But learning from mistakes or failures, these are really, really important lessons. Of course, who wants to learn from failure? Who wants to even recognize failure, which so threatens our sense of self, our pride, and our conceit? But to me, the failures show us our dark side. That's where we don't look, we don't see. To me, enlightenment is not about enlightening the light. The light is already enlightened. Enlightenment is about enlightening the dark, where we don't look, where we haven't seen what we've been ignoring. It's about enlightening our ignorance. Carl Jung also had this to say. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not very popular. (laughs) One of the things I learned is that failure is transient. Like everything else in life, it arises and it passes. It's only a blip in this big, you know, changing ocean of life. It's a wave. It's not forever. It doesn't need to be an identity that one takes up and, and tries to live from for the rest of your life. What we call failure today may even be in the surface of a d- deeper wisdom yet to reveal itself. And this is why this process of mindfulness is so valuable. Another story. This is of a monk who lived in Tennessee, a Chinese monk who came to live in Tennessee, rural Tennessee, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students. When his name was Dae Chun, and when he first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors said, you'd better cut that thing down, or one of those days it's going to fall on your roof. Thank you, said Daechun. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. (laughs) He promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day after day, showed up with chainsaws, (laughs) offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, he said. I do it my way. This went on for six months with (laughs) with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Dae Chun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. One day, the tree finally fell with a crash that shook all the houses on his street. 
He later said that this was the way he had taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. (laughs) You never know when. The poet Faye Weldon said, nothing happens, and nothing happens, and then everything happens. And it's like that in meditation. We, especially in the middle of a retreat, it just feels like nothing. The breath, who cares, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But this is part of what we learn on retreat, is something about this process that is so mysterious and that cannot be quantified. We could say that being on retreat we appreciate a process of learning. Sometimes it's called a process of unfolding or a way of learning in which our being is unfolding in its own time, its own way, subject to its own laws. It's not obedient to our command. I'm going to sit down and have the insights and then go home. It doesn't work that way. The poet Rilke writes about the process of making art, and it's very similar, we could say, to the process of practicing meditation. So I'll read you what he said. Works of art are of an infinite solitude, and no means of approach is as useless as criticism. Only love can touch them. Being an artist means not numbering and counting but ripening like a tree. It comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay before them, so unconcernedly silent and vast. I learn it every day of my life, learn it with difficulty I am grateful for. Patience and ripening are everything. Here on retreat, we are wholeheartedly and devotedly immersed in a process of learning which we call practice. Not just the time on the cushion, but time in silence, in solitude, in the work meditation, in the yoga, in sharing the space here with others, listening to the Dharma, coming for interviews. All of this is meant to encourage this continuing turning of your attention towards the unfolding moment-to-moment process of your being, your experience. In this simple but not so easy act, we are offering ourselves to the spontaneous flow of truth, which is life as it is. Not life according to what we like or dislike, but life as it is. And that is where our learning occurs, seeing things as they are. Or if we're doing the metta practice, we are cherishing the phrases of loving-kindness, returning to them over and over and over, so that over time their power gets revealed. There is this uh, thing about retreat that also, I want to mention, which is this 
the, the fact that so much of our life on retreat is repetition. We repeat certain activities over and over, do we not? We come to the hall to sit some six times a day. We do walking meditation some three times a day. We go to yoga twice a day. We are given uh, the same times for work meditation, for meals. And perhaps even more significant than the outer form being a repetition is the fact that you are practicing internally with the same objects over and over again. The breath, the senses, the thoughts, the emotions, the postures, the asanas, the same over and over again. It's like, well, you might think looking at it from the outside, these people are really slow learners. I mean, you know, (laughs) sort of the attitude, you know, is like you've seen one breath, you've seen them all. (laughs) We might as well just, you know, why, why do it more? You know, there's nothing more to see. You've seen it already. But actually, this is part of the incredible subtlety of the practice. It serves us, this repetition. Revisiting the same objects over and over again, we allows for a deeper and deeper seeing of what is true, of what is actually going on. It allows for a deep relaxation of our being. It allows for an unfolding of the layers It also allows us to enter new territory because as we say so often in practice, letting go is not the end but a beginning of insight into emptiness and impermanence. Letting go is not letting go into some blank nothingness but actually letting go into a a tremendous understanding of the way things are. Achanamaro, this happy monk I was speaking about, um, says this, he says, we are in our meditation, we're so used to working on things that when the mind becomes spacious and empty, we may feel quite lost. I think some of you have experienced this on the retreat. It's like, nothing's happening. Where did everything go? I was having a problem. Where is it? You know, and you may feel like you've lost the meditation. What do I do now? We are so used to doing something with the mind that when it is suddenly open, clear, spacious, we don't know how to leave it alone. This is a very common experience. When we let go of something, suffering ceases. But we ignore that fact and go looking for the next thing to work on instead. We don't, as the expression goes, taste the nectar that comes when we let go. The juice of emptiness. We just zoom on through the juice bar. We keep going because it looks like there's nothing here. It looks kind of boring. No lust, no fear, no other issues to deal with. We think I'll be irresponsible if I'm not dealing with my problems, with my issues. 
Out of the best of intentions, we fail to taste the juice that's right there. So part of what we're learning on in practice is not only to become, as Trungpa said, connoisseurs of our neurosis, but also connoisseurs of emptiness, of seeing the vast and open space of mind. And a lot of this is made possible by the kind of repetition that occurs on retreat. So I've talked a bit now about intentions and I'd like to ask you a question. What might an intention be for you to take home with you? What might you want to take home with you? Just take a few moments to reflect on that right now. You don't need to share it. But what might be an intention that you wish to take home with you? It could be one thing. May I be happy. May I be free from judgment. Let it begin to move through your being. Feel it in your heart. Feel it in your body. This is not just a mental exercise. We may come up with an intention that you hadn't anticipated when you first came here. Because as we practice, our intentions reveal, intentions get revealed. Joseph Campbell says this great thing. He says, we must be willing to get rid of the life we've planned so as to have the, li- t- so as to have the life which is waiting for us. And sometimes that gets revealed in our practice. The life we've planned may not be what's really up. The life that's waiting for us is calling us. And it has a deep intention in it. It wants us to pay attention. It wants us to move in that direction. And only we can know this. Nobody else can tell you. So when we leave here and go out into the world... To cultivate this quality of intention, it helps to have some repetition in your life that might look like a sitting practice every day, that might look like spending 15-20 minutes doing loving-kindness practice. This might look like some quality of commitment to a, a discipline, giving space to yourself to allow for letting go to allow for reflection. How is this intention wanting to move in my life? How am I feeling it? How am I sensing it? I'm very moved whenever I see the Dalai Lama, as many people are, but one of the things, one of the many things about him that is so moving to me is that every day of his life, since he was a small boy, he gets up at three in the morning and he does his practice. Even when he's teaching, when he's traveling, he has a very regular practice. 
He never misses a day. There's no vacation for the Dalai Lama. And part of the... Clearly, the, this practice he does has borne fruit for him and for all of us because when we are in his presence, we feel the power of this incredible intention of this being to develop qualities of compassion and wisdom and to share them with us. So I'd like to close the talk with a reading from Shantideva, which is one of the, one of the people that um, I b- believe has most influenced the Dalai Lama. and, and would, uh, He has been a teacher for the Dalai Lama, even though he's not alive anymore, but his writings and his, the practices that he um, taught are very much um, practices that the Dalai Lama teaches and practices himself. So I'd like to close with a Shantideva prayer, which really, uh, to me, is one of the most beautiful expressions of intention of a human being to cultivate um, amazing qualities of compassion. As no one desires the slightest suffering, nor ever has enough of happiness, there is no difference between myself and others, so let me make others joyfully happy. May those feeble with cold find warmth. May those oppressed with heat be cooled by the boundless waters that pour forth from the great clouds of bodhisattvas. May the rains of lava, blazing stones, and weapons from now on become a rain of flowers. And may all battling with weapons from now on be a playful exchange of flowers. May the naked find clothing, the hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and delicious drinks. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting one another. May I be a guard for all those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the way. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge for all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed. May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. For as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It means so be it, so be it, so be it. So thank you.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 1, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.